And turn with me, please, or listen on as I read the beginning of Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. And hear God's word. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word as ever. We thank you for this 10th chapter of the book of Romans. Now beginning to consider that together, we pray through the preaching and by the working of your Holy Spirit in us that you might shed light upon your word, a light that would Rescue us from the ignorance and the rebellion of the Jews. God, give us a clear knowledge of the truth, we humbly pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the chapter headings are not inspired, neither are the verses. Those came later. Uh, And at times I take issue with them, but at other times, as any preacher and any Christian would, but there are times when they're just right. And here, surely, uh, I think we would all agree uh, that this is... A clear break in the argument. There is a neat uh, division in chapters 9, 10, and 11 along the lines of the chapter heading. What I'm saying is that coming now to chapter 10, we've rounded off one part of the argument in chapter 9, this broader argument in chapters 9 through 11, and we've come to a new stage, and so we'll come to a new stage again in chapter 11. We'll even see, as I have to show you briefly, that each chapter begins in exactly the same way. Well, let me just say a few things about chapter 10 in general before we look at the first three verses, the opening of chapter 10. Uh, I know that I say this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, I love Romans chapter 10. Uh, It's one of the great chapters in the Bible. And in fact, I'm guessing that you love Romans chapter 10. I'm guessing that you have quoted Romans chapter 10 many times in your life and that you've had it quoted to you many times in your life. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, you may not realize where this came from, but the the, the language of if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made under salvation, and so on. It's a great chapter on salvation. It's a great chapter on, uh, on, on the gospel invitation. We'll see that to sinners to be saved. It's a great chapter which uh, tells us about justification by faith alone, the great theme of the book of Romans. But one thing that I would like to say about it, and I think this has been true of me, and I wonder if it's been true of you, and this is really the value of series exposition, is that often it is appreciated on its own. We appreciate Romans chapter 10 for its own sake. We do not appreciate it always as part of this broader argument that Paul is making Not just in Romans as a whole, but even more narrowly in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And one of the questions that I'll be asking, and I've been asking myself is, do I understand how chapter 9 yielded chapter 10? In other words, how did Paul get here? Do I appreciate that point? Well, let me begin by noting its place in the general scheme as a first point. The general scheme being chapters 9, 10, and 11. 
Chapter 9 deals with the purpose of God. The question is, has it failed? Has it failed in particular with respect to the Jews? He says, not at all. It's not, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's verse 6. And then in verse 11, uh, an even more important verse, in my opinion, he says that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. In other words, God's word has not failed. His purpose will stand. And the way that it stands is according to election. So as a chapter on God's purpose, Paul sets forth how that purpose is accomplished and it is accomplished according to election. Romans chapter 9 is, as you know, the great chapter on the sovereignty of God in salvation. That is a purpose, by the way, which is always just, it's always right. It's wrong to question it. That's why Paul asks questions like, in essence, who are you to question God, O man? But it's realized, I, I guess I could add something. It's realized according to election, but election, the purpose of God in election is realized when God calls sinners to himself. So we could add the call. We could add the call to that as well. Verse 16, it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God uh, who shows mercy. All right. Well, uh. That's chapter nine. What is the purpose of chapter 10 as it follows? How does chapter nine yield chapter 10? Well, it doesn't just come in in a haphazard fashion. Paul doesn't just decide here. Well, I've finished with that and I'm ready now to talk about justification by faith. I think that's uh, the subtle error that we fall into sometimes. But I would argue that he has a very definite reason for doing so here. We've already seen we've already seen it at the end of chapter nine. Why are the Jews out and the Gentiles in? Because verse 32, the Jews did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. There is another clear statement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Why are the Jews not saved? Why are they not justified? Simply this. They did not believe. But rather than believing, they stumbled. Uh, They stumbled at the rock, which was Christ, that God placed in Zion. So he begins at the end of chapter 9 to reason about the tragedy of the unbelief of the Jews. Not just the tragedy of the Jews, you see, but the unbelief of the Jews. And connected with that, the importance of faith is the only way to be just In God's sight. And it's because Paul began to think of that at the end or speak of that at the end of chapter nine, that he decides it is time in chapter 10 to elaborate upon that thought. The tragedy of Israel's unbelief in particular. That's why they fell short. And as well, the way of faith as the way of salvation. Now, it must be admitted That chapter 10, in a sense, functions as a parenthesis, much as chapter 6 and 7 did, as a kind of aside. It's not unrelated. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of the end of chapter 9. But it is an aside. It is a parenthesis. It's a digression on the way of faith and how sad it was that the Jews had missed it. But then, when we come to chapter 11, Paul returns to his main line of thought, which is, 
the purpose of God. And so he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. You see how he returns to his theme from chapter nine. And from there, he continues to unfold the mystery of Israel. He calls it in verse 25. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And the mystery concerns Israel. It also concerns the Gentiles in relation to Israel. It all has to do with the church. And we find him saying things like, speaking of the Jews, thinking uh, of their stumbling at the end of chapter 9. Listen to what he says. So he's, he's, still, he's still reflecting on God's purpose with respect to the Jews. He says, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? All of that we will consider in its proper place. For now, we simply need to see how chapter 10 fits into all of this, this broader discussion of God's purpose. The Jews are not saved, he says, because they lack faith, because of their unbelief. And so that in turn leads him to discuss the place of faith in salvation, especially seeing that is the master theme of the epistle, justification by faith alone. And really, if we are to understand its relevance here in the midst of chapters 9 through 11, what Paul is doing is to apply that truth to the Jews in particular. It is an application of that truth to his kinsmen according to the flesh for whom or for whose salvation he longs. He's talked about it already. He's just defined it in chapters 3 and 4. He's told us what's true of us having been justified in chapters 5 through 8. And now he's preaching, in a sense, to the Jews. And he's longing for their salvation. He's longing that they would see it and that they would believe and that they would come in. And so he will return following that in chapter 11 to his purpose, God's purpose with respect to the Jews. But we should also notice, as I began to indicate last time, how chapter 10, as with the end of chapter 9, serves to emphasize uh, the importance of human responsibility. So chapter 9 emphasizes the sovereignty of God and salvation. Chapter 10 emphasizes the other side of things, which is another key purpose of this chapter. When man fails to believe the gospel, when he rejects the gospel, when he stumbles and falls, he has no one to blame but himself. Now, that's what I was saying last time. Now, Paul begins. uh, He begins to elaborate on that thought. Verse 21, the end of the chapter. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. As though to say all day long, I pleaded with them. I preached to them through the prophets, but they would not listen. Oh, that Israel would be saved, but Israel will not be saved. Well, come now to the argument which is before us in the chapter. A basic outline of the chapter. Let me state it very briefly. Verses 1 through 3, he states once more the tragedy of Israel's unbelief. Following that, in verse 4, he states the way of the gospel. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
That's a very important statement that we'll have to un- unpack next time. Following this, in verses 5 through 10, he contrasts two ways of righteousness. The righteousness which is of the law, verse 5, and then the righteousness of faith, verses 6 and following, 6 through 10, which reminds me, uh, as I hope to say, next time uh, of a famous tract of Luther's during the early days of the Reformation, two kinds of righteousness. Well, next time we'll be looking, verses 4 through 6, at two kinds of righteousness. From there, he tells us that the way of faith is open to all, to everyone who believes. If you confess with your mouth, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. For whom is that true? Paul says, for everyone. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jews and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on his name. For whoever calls on the name will be saved. The gospel is for everyone. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's for everyone. And so he tells us in verses 14 through 17 that it's to be preached to everyone. And finally, though it is preached to all, he says, verse 16, not all have obeyed. It it was preached to the Jews. They didn't obey them in particular. And, and, And that he further elaborates that thought in verses 18 through 21. Well, let us look now at verses 1 through 3. And the first thing we notice is how much he longs for Israel's salvation. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now go back to the beginning of chapter 9. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I, I, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He longs for their salvation. He reiterates that at the beginning of chapter 10. And he does exactly the same uh, at, at the beginning of chapter 11. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. His desire was for Israel's salvation. Already we see the true connection between chapters 9 and 10 in the heart of the apostle. Remember, he's bearing his heart in these chapters. He makes that plain. He says, I'm not lying. Listen to me. I really mean this. Because the Jews and even the Gentiles were not really ready To believe that Paul really felt this way. They thought in moving on from Judaism, he had moved on from the Jews. Paul said nothing could be further from the truth. Now think about what he was saying in chapter 9. He has been reflecting mostly of Israel's rejection by God in terms of God's sovereignty. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. The question that we ought to ask of Paul and of ourselves is, does that doctrine, the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation, the doctrine of God's sovereignty in reprobation, that's uh, that's he, he saves whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. Does that doctrine set forth in all of its grandeur, all of its fullness, all of its beauty, 
Not, there was not even one trace of any indication, I said this over and over again, and I hope you're in agreement, that we ought to apologize for God in this. We glory in it fully. And having gloried in that fully, does that make you indifferent with respect to the lost? That's the question. And that's the question that chapter 10 answers. Has Paul suddenly become indifferent to the fate of his countrymen? And the answer is not in the least. It is here at the beginning of chapter 10, seeing it as flowing out of chapter 9, that once and for all the Apostle Paul demolishes what is called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism, now that that should be clear, it's it's an exaggerated form of Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism says, well then, if God is sovereign, you need not worry about the lost. God will worry about the lost. That's, That's not the teaching. That's not what we find in the heart and in the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Indeed, that's not even what we find in the heart of our Lord in the Gospels. We find him grieving and sorrowing over the lost, especially those in Jerusalem. He offers a lament for them. If God is sovereign, it doesn't matter what I do. If God is sovereign, it doesn't matter if I pray. Did you notice that? Paul doesn't just say, my heart is breaking for them, but he says, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for them. God knows who are his. I don't. I pray. I pray for the lost. I pray for my countrymen in particular. It is here upon this verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, that the error of hyper-Calvinism is laid to rest. There is no place in the heart of a believer, of a reformed Calvinistic believer, for an indifference with respect to the lost. No, we ought to be like Paul who says, well, it's all a matter of God's will. It isn't a matter of man. It's a matter of God entirely. For that matter, I'm able to say along with Paul that if man is lost, it is solely and entirely because of his own unbelief. I lay the blame squarely at his feet. If he is lost, it is because he has rejected God deliberately. Though God has invited him repeatedly all day long, I've stretched out my hand, God says to a disobedient and contrary people. And yet all day long, they harden their hearts in unbelief. Can you really feel sorry for them? Yes, you can. That's what Paul is saying. In a sense, we could say, well, Paul, who could feel sorry for them? And Paul is saying, I do. My heart is breaking for these people. My heart's desire and prayer is for their salvation. He continued, as he said at the beginning of chapter 9, to carry this weight of sorrow and grief about them in his heart, which made him long and pray for their salvation. Indeed, all that he wrote in chapters 9 through 10 and 11 was so that they might be provoked to jealousy. It was so that they might see their blindness and call upon the Lord and be saved. You see, he isn't just thinking about it. He's doing something about it. He isn't just saying, well, God does all. I do nothing. No, the very idea of God's sovereignty is what makes him work. God is working. So I work as well. Do you realize? And if you don't realize this, then I would suggest you begin to read more church history. That the greatest evangelists that this country has ever known and that the world has ever known have almost invariably, I'll say almost, I'll admit there are exceptions to this, but that the greatest missionaries, the greatest evangelists have been Calvinists. The men who were animated with the greatest burden for souls were always the men who had the deepest, almost always, I'll say that again, I'll allow for exceptions, but almost always the men who had the deepest and the greatest sense of God's sovereignty. Read Jonathan Edwards. Read the, the diary and journals of David Brainerd. 
You'll see both things existing side by side, not in tension, but existing side by side in the heart of the same man. I wonder if you could say the same of your own heart. Is there room in your heart for both things? Do you see how chapter 9 leads to chapter 10? I'll ask the question as Martin Lloyd-Jones asks it. Do we feel surprised by chapter 10, given what he says in chapter 9? Well, I'll just, I'll just admit it for you. I, I did a little when I asked the question, when I realized what was really going on here. But then I was happy to discover the connection. Do, do, do we feel a sense of indifference as Calvinists, as Reformed Christians with respect to the lost? Or does the, a thought of God's sovereignty make us say, along with Paul, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, for America, for the world, is that they may be saved by a sovereign God through the preaching of the gospel of faith in Christ alone. Well, that's that's the idea of chapter 10. And so this leads him in verse two to state once more the tragic position of the Jews. It was this for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's a very interesting way of putting it, of describing the position of the Jews. He's saying two, two things. In one sense, he's commending them. He's saying, if anyone knows what it is to be a Jew, it's me, Paul. Read Philippians 3. You'll see a man who was, well, at least in his former way of thinking, glorying in what it meant to be a Jew. He understood the position of the Jews. And, and he was commending them. He wasn't saying, you know, these Jews are lazy, they're indifferent, they don't care. He's saying, no, of all people in all the world, I don't know anyone who's so zealous for God as the Jews. There's something really remarkable about these people. They are some of the most earnest people you will ever meet with respect to their beliefs, with respect to religion. He has no interest in questioning that. He's commending them. The one thing he said this earlier in chapter nine, the one thing they wanted to know more than anything was God. And then connected with that, they wanted to know how to live a life that was pleasing to him. These were the two great concerns of their life. And and they were they were zealous about this. You could say they were on fire about it. And yet the second thing he says, and here is the tragedy of the Jews, is that their zeal was a false zeal. Oh, I don't have any interest in questioning their zeal, their earnestness. But here's the tragedy that for all the zeal that they had about God and his ways and his law, it was not based upon the truth. It was based upon a lie. Do you remember what Jesus says in John chapter eight? Just think of that. You're always obeying your father, not Abraham, but Satan. Satan is a liar and he's been telling lies from the beginning. You haven't believed the truth about God. You've believed a lie. And all of your zeal is animated by a falsehood, by a lie. Now, again, if you think of all of our Lord's interactions with the Jews in the Gospels, you'll see the same thing. He was never interested in questioning their zeal. If anything, they were too zealous. That's the truth. But he was interacting with them on the basis of what they believed, what stood behind their zeal. Well, here were these religious zealots. They were so earnest. They were so sincere. But they were also Wrong. They were also wrong. Well, that tells us something very important about zeal. What is zeal? Well, it's this this earnestness, this fire in the bosom. It's a man who's 
who's animated about his religion. Well, what it tells us is that zeal is good, but it isn't everything. Now, I almost said zeal is neutral. It's indifferent. I won't go that far. Zeal is good, but it isn't everything. A man can be zealous and still be wrong. Now, that should be obvious, but it's clear today that it isn't. And I don't think it was clear in Paul's day either. The idea seems to be that if a man is very serious about his position, then there must be something to it. Or else, why would he be so animated about it? Who am I to question a man of such zeal? He's so sincere about God. He must be a true believer. But what the Bible says about such a person is that he might be very seriously sincere and yet be very seriously wrong. And very often he is. Do you see how tragic it is that a man like this should be wrong of all people? In a sense, we have no trouble over the man who is wrong, who is indifferent, but the man who is zealous, who is so sure, who's so committed to what he thinks is the truth. This man is even willing to die for what he believes. In a sense, you can't help but admire his commitment to what he thinks is the truth. There are many people like this today. And when you look at them, you can't help but feel sorry for them. And that's what Paul That's what Paul felt in his heart. He sensed the tragedy of these earnest unbelievers. Well, as I say, there's nothing more tragic, but I would also say this about zeal. There's nothing more dangerous than a zeal which is not according to the truth. A zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do you realize that the greatest enemy of true religion is not the atheist? I can tell you honestly that I don't think about the atheist at all. I don't worry about the atheist at all. Let the, the school of the new atheists say whatever they like. I, I, I tell you honestly, I'm not worried about what they say at all, and neither should you. But the greatest enemy of true religion is always the heretic. It's the man who comes into the church and says, I've got the truth of God, only he's telling a lie. It is always such people, not the men who are standing outside, but those who come in who do the greatest damage to the truth and to the church. Of course, the opposite is not indifference. Paul isn't suggesting that the solution would have been to cool their zeal. It's obvious that indifference to the truth or lukewarmness, Jesus calls it in Revelation, is reprehensible. It demonstrates, if anything, a failure to grasp the truth as it is in Jesus. Imagine a man who has the truth and yet who's indifferent to it. If anyone should possess a zeal for God, it's Christians. And if it's tragic that the Jews possessed a false zeal, doubly tragic if we possess none who have the truth. But the opposite is not indifference. The, 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 um, the zeal for God, that's not according to knowledge. The opposite is a zeal which is according to knowledge, obviously. That's the real point the apostle is making. It's not that we shouldn't be zealous. We should. But that our zeal must be according to the truth. Otherwise, it's worthless and it's dangerous to us and others. As Christians, the truth should be the biggest thing in our lives. I'll say that again. I think that's the most important thing that I'm going to say this morning. The truth should be the biggest thing in our lives. You remember what Jesus says about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life. And there's no way to believe in Jesus 
and not to believe in the truth. A Christian, someone who's come out of darkness into the light. He used to live a life of falsehood and deceit. Now he's living a life of truth. Whereas Paul says the unbeliever, if you think of how he describes him in Romans chapter 1, I read that last time. The unbeliever is one who exchanges the truth about God for a lie. The unbeliever is one who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and sin. That's the first thing he says about the unbeliever. The unbeliever is someone about whom God gave them over to a debased mind. If you just went home and read Romans chapter 1, you would realize the great thing he's talking about The man in sin is his mind, his reprobate mind. It's that he lacks knowledge. It isn't that he lacks zeal. If if anything, you look at this man in sin in Romans chapter 1 and you say, well, he's very zealous, only he's zealous to sin. The tragedy about him isn't that he lacks zeal, it's that he lacks knowledge. He has a debased mind. Well, having said that about zeal, let me come to the next point, and that is, to say something about knowledge. The Jews lacked it. That's why their zeal was false. In verse 3, he begins to unpack that. He says, not according to knowledge, verse 2, for being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Here is the sense in which Their their zeal was not according to knowledge. It's that they were ignorant, he says, of the righteousness of God. Now, why is that the ultimate failure on their part to be saved? Their ignorance. Because quite clearly, as he states in verses 31 and following, it was the very thing they were seeking to attain. But Israel, verse 31, pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. There they were seeking it. They were seeking to attain righteousness. They thought they were on the path. If anything, they thought they had attained it. In other words, the Jews of all people thought they were the experts on the subject of righteousness. Did you notice, by the way, that Paul says the word righteousness three times in verse three, in case you wondered what the main idea was. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God or back in verse 31, pursuing a law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Five times he says it in two verses. Well, if anyone in all the world thought, I know what righteousness is all about. It was the Jews. And they said, I know where to find it. It's in the law of God. And I know how to attain it. It's by keeping the law of God. And they even went a step further and said, I've kept the law of God. I am righteous. They thought they were so wise. They thought they were wise with respect to God, with respect to righteous. And the other thing is, they were so incredibly zealous about their position. And yet here is where their zeal proved to be false. He says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. The very thing they thought they knew, they didn't. In what sense were they ignorant? In that the righteousness was found not in the law. That was the assertion of the Jew. But in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, you remember how God placed the stone in Zion. We read that last time and how they stumbled over the stone. They took offense. Why? Because for them, righteousness as a gift was unthinkable. 
They were unable to conceive of righteousness in this way as a gift that God gives freely to sinners. It was something in their minds that you worked for. You studied diligently. You worked diligently. You attained it after strenuous effort. Oh, perhaps there would be a time that you could say with Paul, as to the law, blameless. That's what they set forth. That was the wisdom of the Jew. And in this, they proved themselves to be utterly ignorant about the righteousness of God. Indeed, we might even say the righteousness of the law, as though any man could keep it. But what is the righteousness of God? Well, the righteousness of God is what God was revealing to the Jew. And it's what he's revealing to us, not in the law, but in the gospel. Righteousness is a gift in the person of Jesus Christ. But that was not a way of righteousness that they could accept or submit to, Paul says. They must earn it. They must attain it for themselves. They were seeking to establish their own. Well, you see why I, why I entitled this sermon what I did. They were ignorant, yes, but it was a willful ignorance. This is the act of the man, Romans chapter 1, who chooses to be ignorant. The truth is right in front of him. The stone is laid in his very midst, and yet he rejects it. He stumbles over it. He suppresses it in unrighteousness, and he chooses ignorance instead. But do you see on the other side how important knowledge is to salvation? Relative to zeal, relative to anything. How important knowledge is to salvation? You say, well, wait a second, Pastor. Did you just make salvation a matter of knowledge? Yes, I did. So did the Apostle Paul. It's a matter of knowledge. That's what Paul is saying. Salvation is a knowledge of the truth. Or we could put it this way. Perhaps you'd be a little more comfortable with this. Salvation leads us to a knowledge of the truth. That as men are led out of ignorance to a knowledge of the truth, so they are saved. But they perish. Why? Because of ignorance. They believe a lie rather than the truth. And so salvation, according to the Apostle Paul, and I hope this is your testimony, it's my testimony. Salvation involves an enlightening of the mind that once was in darkness, the mind that was debased in sin. God has shed the light of the gospel upon the soul. The mind is enlightened. There's this most wonderful transformation of the inner man. This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter four. Notice the contrast. Verse 17 This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you notice how often the apostle speaks in terms of the mind, the understanding, the truth? First Timothy chapter two, verse four. This is how Paul puts it. Speaking of God, to whom we pray for all people. 
He says, God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, there's many such statements that we could find like this in the New Testament. What God desires in offering the gospel to all is that they may be saved by coming to a knowledge of the truth. But what is the truth? I think that's the last thing we need to see. If men are saved by coming to a knowledge of truth and if, well, they're lost because they reject it or at least because they're ignorant concerning it. What what is the truth of God? And the truth of God is simply this. It is the righteousness of God. You see, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is, Paul has said it over and over and over again in Romans. The gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. In other words, the gospel is something that God wants us to know. In a sense, you see, he acknowledges our ignorance. He understands we're ignorant with respect to this one great thing, the righteousness of God. And so what does he do? He makes it clear to us. How does he make it clear to us? In the gospel, in Jesus Christ. He tells us in the gospel how it is that we sinners may may become righteous in his sight. He makes it clear to us in an unmistakable way. He reveals his righteousness, the righteousness of God in the gospel of his son. Now, give give me the next few sermons as we work through chapter 10 to unpack that idea. You say, I want to hear more about that. That's the whole point of the rest of the chapter. Christ is the end of the law for what? For righteousness to the one who believes, not for anyone else, but to the one who believes Christ becomes to him righteousness. Well, as I say soon, I'll have much to say about that. For now, let us simply learn to see the gospel like that. It is a revelation of this fact that God justifies. That is, he declares sinners to be righteous, not by their obedience to the law, but by faith in Christ alone. That's the great and central fact of the gospel. And whoever believes that, whoever believes him, Jesus Christ, will never be put to shame. All who call upon the name of the Lord The Lord Jesus will surely be saved. Let me come in closing to three points of application. First and very briefly, I would ask you all, do you have a zeal for God? Now, I've been saying that zeal is important in its own way. Zeal is something that can be highly destructive. I think we've all learned that if we've been Christians for any amount of time. But again, the opposite is not indifference. I mean, the opposite of destructive zeal. The opposite is A wholesome zeal, a zeal which is according to the truth. So that's the kind of thing I think that we need to be examining about ourselves always. Do I have zeal and then of what kind? Is my zeal according to the truth? Is my zeal like Paul's? Number two, have we got knowledge? Do we have a knowledge of the truth? Has the Lord brought us to a knowledge of the truth? Is our testimony exactly what Paul says? Once, once upon a time, my mind was darkened, but the Lord has taught me. I have learned Christ. I've learned the truth. In a sense, I could say that there is no way for any of you now to plead ignorance of God's righteousness, for I've told you of it, and I plan to tell you all about it in the sermons to come. I've told you where it is found. Not in yourself, not in the law, but only in Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you in closing as a third point of application. And here is the great thing. Have you submitted to it? 
Have you submitted to the righteousness of God? Or are you like the Jews still trying to establish or achieve your own by the law? Again, that was the folly. That was the ignorance of the Jews. But have you? And what is this righteousness? Well, I say again, it is that which is found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ himself. It's not found in the law. It's not found in yourself, but in Christ alone. It's found in his perfect life. It's found in his death and his doing and dying, as the Puritans would say. It's found in his very person. You have not kept the law, but he has. That's the gospel. You have not kept the law, but he has. Let that thought stay with you as we prepare for verse 4 next week. And test yourself by this. Do you find that you... Resist the very thought of righteousness as a gift. It's something that I must establish. It's something that I must do. Righteousness cannot be a gift. Or do you find that by God's grace, this very idea of righteousness as a gift offered to you freely in the gospel and received solely and simply by faith alone? Well, do you find that you're able really to submit to that? That you've yielded yourself fully to it. That you're saying along with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so the Apostle Paul says, and I'll read it again as I read it earlier in the sermon and close with these words. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. And let us come now to the table.